So we're going to be doing a series of teaching along this theme of serving others. I'll be doing uh, uh, several of them, and uh, Jordan will be um, once again here on, on this theme uh, on this month as well. But it's a new series, Serving One Another, and so I'm going to kind of give some groundwork of this series, and then next week we get into even some really, really fun stuff. I'm having a hard time restraining myself already from getting into my next week's message. I have all three of them laid out. The first three weeks here are laid out, and I just kind of like want to dive into the next week, and it's like, okay, okay, chill, Galen, hold back a little bit. So... Let's start off, though, by reading together. I want to invite you to read with me this core value. Serving others by giving of ourselves through the compelling love of Christ, using our gifts, talents, and life experiences to bless, strengthen, and support others in tangible ways. Wow. There's a lot of points covered here. So we're going to be touching on the different facets of what we've outlined here over the next four weeks. But today I want to go, us to go to a scriptural text, and it's recorded both in Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, and the gospel according to Mark. Let's go, though, to the gospel according to Mark. It's chapter 10. And there's some Interchange going on with Jesus and the disciples. And in Mark 10, about verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside. These are the 12 disciples that he invited to come and follow him. He took them aside and began telling them what was going to happen to him. Up till this point, by and large, they saw him as a good teacher. And he was very fascinating to them because... He not only taught some things that were quite controversial of the day, but he did some things that was not really commonly understood in the way that he ministered to people. He would just like forgive people of their sins, even when they didn't ask for forgiveness. And he would sit with people that were not the most popular guys in the city. They were considered actually outcasts, some of those guys, you know. You don't want to hang around them. And Jesus would be caught hanging out with them, interacting with them. And rather than considering them to be deplorables with whom he would keep at arm's length, he actually came close to them. Disciples were mystified by this. They they were amazed at how Jesus just interacted and responded. And another interesting fact about Jesus, that the people that Jesus got most frustrated with, and a couple times he just got angry with them, that was those self-righteous religious people. 
It was the ones who had been called to follow after Christ, to follow after God, I should say, and to be a light to all the nations. They'd become religious and self-righteous, putting, laying out judgment against other people. It was the only people that Jesus really got upset with. And his human emotions at times would get pretty stirred. And he had some tough things to say to them, like you white and sepulchers. And other few choice words he had to say and got a little angry with these religious folks. I, I think that God today, probably if he gets upset at anything, he got upset at and angry at people because of sin and failure. We all sin and come short, but his love is unconditional. But the self-righteousness that can be a part of our lives is something that is, it can actually, actually wind up being quite hideous in that we misrepresent the one that we proclaim to know so well. And it's like Jesus is like, Enough is enough. <laughs> Let us cut through all this religious stuff and let's get down to the basics of the heart of the living God. So the disciples, they're on a journey and now he's going to pull them aside and he's going to begin to tell them about his mission and the purpose for his coming, which they had not understood up till this season of time. Now look at what he says. Verse 33 Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. This is not a very pretty picture that Jesus is painting. They will mock him. They will spit upon him, scourge him, and kill him, and three days later... He will rise again. Verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said, Grant that we may sit in your glory one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, sure, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Now, they had no real clue of what Jesus was talking about. Jesus here is speaking of the cup of suffering that he was about to face. And this was to be in conjunction with, prophetically foretold, related to the laying down of his life, which was the mission that he came to earth for. And so Jesus is giving them something in bits of insight of which is like most is going over their heads as it would have ours if we'd have been sitting there. It's like, what are you talking about? 
And so they're kind of like changing the subject almost here. Well, they are actually, because they're not getting it. He's introducing it. You know, and there's so many things. Let me say this. There's so many things in life. As we're on the way, Jesus pulls us aside and he introduces us to nuggets and bits of spiritual reality and truth, often at which in that moment of our journey doesn't make sense to us. And later we can look back and go, oh, that's what that was all about. Anybody relate to that? But at the time it's like, what? Sometimes as you're reading scriptures and all of the like Holy Spirit highlights a particular passage to you, it's like, I don't really get how this work applies to my life, but I have this sense like I'm supposed to know, but I don't know yet. And then down the road, you may hear a message or you may have a, maybe something prophetically shared by another person. It's kind of like, oh, I think there's a connection. It can be months or even years later, but really soon now that, that, that it becomes more clear. The fog begins to lift and you go, I can see clearly now. Aha. The disciples are in a bit of a fog at this moment. They have no idea, idea the suffering that Christ is about to go through. And Jesus ropes them in on the whole thing and says, the same cup of suffering you're going to experience too. Oh, joy. That's not exactly what I signed up for, Jesus. That's not what I signed up for. I think that in our modern American evangelism, that we portray the gospel as, wow, cool, just pray to this prayer and you get a free ticket to heaven. Yay! How many of you know and have found out there's more to it than that? It's not just about going to heaven. No. It's about entering into and becoming a participant in the body of Christ. And even as Christ suffered, so shall we. Suffer to what? How many of you know that it's not easy just the laying down of our own selfish desires? That's a suffering of sorts, right? At least it is for me, okay? It's like, no, I don't want to do that. You know, we like our, to be, have our individualistic selves, self. Be in control, be in charge of my life. And sometimes God says, no, no, I'm asking you to humble yourself, lay down your heart, lay down your rights, and yield to me. And you yield to me, Christ says, most often by how? Yielding to others. Has anyone found out in 2021, and we're starting off a brand new year, but way back in 2021, do you ever have a moment of frustration in that laying down of your rights, your whatever? Yeah, six of us really had went through it. It was tough. And I get confronted with this every so often, and sometimes it feels way too often. <laughs> ah, laying it all down, laying it all down. Do you know what? It's where the beauty is. It's where the joy comes. The joy comes as we learn a life of surrender. 
as we learn a lifestyle of Christ-likeness in beginning to just lay it all down before him. I love the one song, I lift my hands up, lay my life down. Whoever wrote that song understands a little something about what it means is to be carry that cup with Christ Jesus, to be identified with Christ, to live in Christ, to live with Christ. Well, let's read on to the story because it's going to get better. More interesting anyhow. And so Jesus said, but to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten begin to feel indignant with James and John. Now, it's interesting to note that the whole thing of being baptized with and the same thing you were going to experience too, it went right over their heads. They were just focused. They were just focused on the James and John and their desire of, of, of notability and nobleness and significance. And so they're just fuming about this. Who did James and John think they are? He called all 12 of us, 12 of us, not just you two guys. We all have significance. We all been hanging out together. We sit around the campfires and talk at night. And we're there when Jesus is doing the miracles. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're as much participants as you. Verse 42, and calling them to himself. How many of you know, you better go, yeah, what's up? When he says, come here, guys. So Jesus says, okay, guys, come on over here. We, we got to get closer here. We just got to get in a huddle. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them. And their great men exercised authority over them. And the disciples are probably going like, what's he talking about? We're not talking about Gentiles. We're not talking about the big shots of the kingdom of this world. What's Jesus bringing this into, into focus for? Anyhow, Jesus is about to show a contrast of hard attitude and operation. So he does it by first going to the Gentiles. And the spirit of this world is about power over. How many of you recognize it's one of the most subtle ploys of the enemy to first cause us to feel insignificant, that we're not enough or good enough, so we have to exert ourselves to try to impress others to kind of bolster our own felt sense of significance and insecurity and to raise ourselves a little bit. And sometimes we don't do that publicly. Some of us, by personally, personality, don't do that publicly, but you can feel some of that stuff going on in the inside. And then as soon as that starts happening within us, we can become entangled then with these lies of the enemy. And it's a perfect setup for kind of, for in, it, it's, it's a growth inhibitor at best. At worst, it'll be a stumbling block in our lives. And so Jesus is here, and he's saying to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over, the great men exercised authority over them, but, everybody say but, 
It is not so among you. There's something powerful in that statement. Did you know that Jesus didn't say, all right, guys, now, this should never be among you. He just simply spoke as if it was a reality of those of you, because you're in relationship with me, this is not how it works for us. He already considered them as a part of his flow and life and his kingdom. It is not so among you. Present tense. He didn't say in the future, or he didn't say, he, he, he just like made it very personal, very real, and now in the present. So what does he say? It's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Bam. There it is. I mean, that's like, bam, right in their face. He did it in a gentle way, I imagine. I don't think it was with sternness or a rebuke. There's not a sense of that, but he just kind of matter-of-factly saying it. But it must have felt like, whoa, that's a real eye-opener. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Okay, guys, start looking around at all these 11 other guys you get to serve. Moments later, they were fussing and fuming about who's going to be the greatest. And James and John, they've kind of exerted themselves like, hey, swell in their chest a little bit. And the other guy's like, what do they think they are? And now Jesus just kind of rolls it out. He says, whoever's going to be the greatest, be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. Oh, my goodness. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Several of the things I want to make note of in this passage. I like how Jesus, or the, how the scriptures point out in verse 35, is that the disciples came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. If you don't know the heart of Christ, if you not, haven't been tracking well in the Gospels, at first this could seem like a very selfish, egotistical thing. I'm important. Jesus, you know, we want you to do something great for us. But actually, that's not the case. They had this sense that was just, it was a part of their culture. And Jesus had made it so clear in numerous ways, and we won't go to the other passages, but basically he was putting his heart on the line and inviting them into, them into a place of intimacy, of friendship, and he created a culture in their midst. And in their environment, they knew it was okay just to ask according to the desires of their heart, and it was perfectly acceptable and encouraged. It's no different today. As members of Christ's body, we being servants of Christ, but he invites us into friendship. He even told his disciples over in John, I forget, I think it's 14, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. You're not just my servant where I send out the commands. 
go get this, go get that, do this, do that. But rather, I invite you to a place of intimate conversation and of the sharing of their hearts. The disciples were not off track here when they come to him and said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus still welcomes that kind of a response from us today. Matter of fact, he spoke quite, about it, uh, quite a bit about it, and we have it recorded in the gospel according to John. They had this close conversation or this close uh, intimate relationship. It was interesting that also in Luke chapter 12, we won't turn there, but, um, or maybe we have it on the screen, but Luke 12, 4, this is a whole other setting that where Jesus was speaking actually to a whole multitude, and he said, I say to you, my friends... Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. He addressed the larger group of humanity as friends. See, that's the humility of Christ. He came in lowly, he was born in a stable. And what Jesus was modeling for all of us of humankind. He was modeling for us is that the way to nobility is to come in with our heads low and our hearts of humility and to lift up and to serve. Jesus, here in this word, philos is the word that he uses for friend, and it wasn't a term for just casual acquaintance, but people who were very familiar with one another. He didn't refer to the crowd there in Luke 12 as, okay, you sinners and you outcasts. How many of you thought think that there may have been some sinners there, right? Some people who maybe had some real issues in life like, like we all do. But he addressed them as friends. He was honoring them as a friend. Jesus had this high-level view and honor of fellow human beings. Yes, those who were sinners and those who were considered the deplorables of the society. Jesus still views all of humanity in the same manner today. He doesn't identify the people by their outward behavior. He identifies them by the responsiveness of their heart towards a God that they're trying to understand. He calls them friends. And they're friends by virtue of having been created by him, but they're also friends by virtue of the fact is that they have responsive hearts, even though the exterior may be rough and the behavior may not look friendly. So back to verse 36, Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? They said, Grant that we may sit in your glory. Now, it's Jesus, <clears throat> it's interesting to me, that there is a human desire that's actually planted by God within us to want to experience God's glory. We're wired for glory. So when they say we want to sit in your glory, that shouldn't surprise us. And we should never think, okay, dudes, just kind of keep your heads low. You're really nobodies. No, you're significant. Everyone in this world is significant. 
Every person in this world has this innate desire to want to be within the glory of Christ. Why? Because they're created by Christ. They have a connection with Christ, even though they don't recognize it. There is a connection. So every human wants to experience God's glory and his goodness. That's normal. And it's beautiful, powerful. And so Jesus tells the disciples, look, guys, you've forsaken all to follow after me and to lay down your lives for the sake of the gospel. You're going to experience some persecutions in this world. We read of that in the gospel according to John. You're going to experience rejection from self-righteous ones. Sure enough, the same religious sect of people that crucified Jesus persecuted the early church. Interestingly, the man who we esteem highly today who wrote most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, formerly was known as Saul, he was one that would haul in Christians to the leaders to have them stoned and persecuted and stoned to death for the sake of their heart to follow after Christ. Because he had been blinded by his religiosity. He thought he was doing God a favor by ridding the world of Christians. It's just blindness. When we're all born into this world, we have this connection with the divine one but we're in darkness. That's why the scripture uses a metaphor about light and versus darkness. Jesus is the light. He shines into the darkness of our souls. And some of you can remember the time, the initial time, when you first begin to see light. You're like, oh my goodness. And you begin to see yourself in the light of his glory. That's the beginnings of change and progressive transformation that will be taking place over the course of our lives. And so, <clears throat> here we have Jesus. He's telling the disciples all of what's going to happen. Disciples are reacting to James and John. And Jesus makes a point of clarification between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. We see we live in the world. We're not of the world there's always been a sharp contrast between the two. And honestly, sometimes our eyes can be blurred to the extent that we can't make the distinction between what is of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. I've never seen it so much of a struggle as in the last two years as a society. As Christians that live in our corner of the world, there's been such great struggle to somehow try to discern between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And the struggle is in discerning of which is which and how am I going to navigate my way through this, this thing called life when I have these two tensions here. And, 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 and they're, they're, they're opposites in many ways. The kingdom of God, it looks very opposite and very different from the kingdom of this world. And thus my response is accordingly. 
it's difficult to discern, and it's difficult then to how do I live this out. But it's always been that way. This is nothing new. There's just certain seasons in our lives personally, corporately for the greater body of Christ that it's more difficult to discern the ways of the Lord. But there's always been sharp contrast. Keep in mind, it will never work to try to Christianize the kingdom of this world. The kingdoms of this world, we're all going to bow down to the kingdom of our Lord. Don't get caught up in trying to Christianize and superimpose Christian values onto the kingdom of this world. You know how we make a difference? By our transformation as members of Christ's body. As we're changed from the inside out, we become more alive and more glowing. And it's the glory of God then that other people sense. And then they want to partake of, willingly partake of. Not by our force or manipulation trying to get them to conform to our belief system. But rather willingly partake of Christ Jesus. That's how society changes for the glory of God. So Jesus says, guys, we don't want you to be like the kingdom of the world. If you want to become great, be your servant. Do you know the word great here comes from the Greek word megas? We call it mega. Mega stadiums, mega this, mega that, mega dollars. Anybody want some mega dollars today? Come on. Mega, mega, mega love. And the meaning behind it in this context is to be notable or to be one of significance. Did you notice that Jesus never rebuked them for having a desire for significance and notability? He actually encouraged it. If Jesus wanted to rebuke them, this was the perfect opportunity to say, Dudes, your attitude is all wrong. You should consider yourself lowly little worms. Don't be thinking lofty ideas about having notability before God. Quite the contrary, he actually affirmed them for their desire for megas. I love this passage for several reasons, and that's one of several. Notability in the kingdom of this world, though, is different than notability in the kingdom of God. But it's a good thing to wish for significance and notability. Jesus brings some clarification. You already guessed it. You got it. You read it. Here's the pathway to notability, significance in the kingdom of God. Here's how we get from here to there. The pathway of servanthood. The laying down of our lives. The willing to come alongside and serve. You know, some of the people that have the greatest notability in my life is just me personally. You know, my growing up years as a kid, I'm talking about a little kid up, were the people who humbly served and were never on a platform and never had a microphone. Those people have impacted my life as much and more than the few people that I've listened to that had a great this or that of a presentation. It's their humble servanthood. I can just start listing them off. 
one after another. All of my life, I'm always noticing this. Danette and I were just at a minister's type of retreat thing here a couple of weeks ago. And you know who I was most fascinated with? The servants. No microphone, no platform. They were just humbly serving us and making the event special. I look at these people, men and women, I'm like, wow. You know who I was drawn to? Jeanette and I were drawn into conversation with those people, first and foremost, because my heart's attracted to servant notability. That was more important to me to engage with conversation with them because I want to draw from them. I want to bless them. I want to do what? How can I want to serve them? Because they're just humbly, quietly just serving They weren't seeking notability. They were just humbly serving out of the love of their hearts with a smile on their face, men and women alike. No obligation. They signed up and said, I want to serve. I just want to help. I'm so grateful for you guys that have that servant spirit. Let's wrap this up, guys. When we come spiritually alive. The more alive that we become in Christ, the greater connectedness we desire with one another and it's expressed through serving one another. That's how we know. It's one of the ways that we can measure growth in our own lives is by the desire to serve. Now, when our hearts are really captured by Christ, we find our desire to serve is much greater than our capacity. So then we have to say no to opportunities to serve. But the desire is, I want to serve. What can I do? I'll set aside somewhat of things that would really make me feel good at the moment because I want to serve you. That's one of the evidences and fruit of spiritual growth and transformation. Because it's taking on the likeness of Christ in every area of our lives. So our mission and our highest priority is to have the heart of a servant in our homes. We all know what makes for great family life in our homes. and That's the heart of a servant. It's beautiful when one person really has that heart. It's better when... More than one person carries that attitude. And moms and dads, sometimes it's like trying to get our kids to catch that may seem like a futile attempt. Do you know what I've learned? They're catching it. They're catching it. They're watching. Just kind of by osmosis, it just gets absorbed because it's a culture of a home. It's a culture of a family. It becomes a culture of a church. It becomes a culture in any setting. It's when we recognize that the key to nobility, the key to notability as well, is servitude. And there's something powerful, beautiful about serving. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. 
often servants are not even seen. Most of you can show up here on Sunday morning, and that's beautiful. I love it. But what you don't see is the serving that's going on all week. And the serving that's going on right now in other parts of the building. Nobody's saying, will you bring me up on the platform, Galen, and make sure everybody knows how many hours I put into this? No, I don't ever sense that attitude at all. We are grateful, and we certainly want to honor, but, 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 but there's, there's so many wonderful hearts of servanthood sitting in the pews here as well as the ones that we don't see throughout the week. And just wrapping this up, let's remember this, that we're all members of Christ's body. As we were came to the Lord's table today and we were partaking of Christ, always remember, you don't just partake of the head. You tar partake of the whole body of Christ. That means interconnectedness. That means interaction. And as Ephesians talks about how that every joint supplieth in a natural body, and that's what's used metaphoric, metaphorically of Christ's body, as we're all members of the body, we're all connected. This body is just kind of like moving all over and flexing today because I have one member of my body serving the other members, right? And that's the beauty of what happens with us. And I want to invite us to stand together and I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Next week, we're going to get into some more stuff related to this subject that I'm so excited about sharing with you. And we'll wrap this series up here in a few weeks. But wow, there's so much more to come that I believe is life-giving and that can encourage us. Can we pray this prayer of a servant together? I want to invite you. Father God, I come to you in the name. Are we on? Okay. Let's hang on a second here. Alrighty. Father God, I come to you in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. I receive forgiveness for any self-centeredness and failure to not always live as a servant to others. I pray that my heart will become shaped into the likeness of Christ, and I desire to become a fully active participant of Christ's body and serve others faithfully all the days of my life. And if that's your heart, say amen. I pray that Today you go in God's peace and his grace. <clears throat> the joy of the Lord will be your strength this week. And that God will give you opportunities as we have each and every week to serve others. But may God also give us the wisdom to know when and where and how to serve in ways. Because like I say, there's more opportunity than we can possibly meet. But by all means, we want to be involved in serving others. So go in the peace of God. It's so good that you come today and that we could worship together and come to the Lord's table together. And may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the name of Christ.